The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. It's a delight for me to introduce uh, to you our speaker this morning. I'm excited about January um, in terms of some of our outside speakers, uh, both for this morning and later in the month. Later in the month, uh, we have someone coming to give a series of lectures, Jay Cameron Carter from Duke, and today we have Paul Lim, who is coming to us from Vanderbilt. And one of the things that excites me uh, about these uh, guests is, as faculty, we have a strong conviction in administration and, and others. We love the mountain, but we also need you to get off of the mountain, to hear voices that don't come from the mountain, right? I know the Scots come from the mountain, but most of you are not actually Scottish, and anyways, you won't always live on the mountain. So, um, but we can't fit you in a bus. So in many ways, we need to bring people here. We bring people here who very often are very sympathetic with us. Sometimes they have different perspectives, sometimes share similar perspectives, but are in different places. But it just helps us to have relationships, to hear, to hear sermons from folks in different places, to hear academic lectures. And so I hope you keep that in mind, um, not just in these lectures and, and, and talks, but, but throughout uh, the time here at Covenant, whenever we bring in folks from, from off the mountain, how meaningful that is for us as students, faculty, and staff. Very brief introduction for Paul. He, he uh, has been at Vanderbilt, I don't know, five, six years. You're getting a lot of gray hair on your beard, so I don't... That's been. But Paul and I studied um, overseas in Britain together. Paul is a graduate of Cambridge. He was there, I, I believe, around the same time and, and is friends with um, Dr. Dryden. He has a um, degree from Yale. He, he has published various things. He taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary before going to Vanderbilt. His most recent publication is a serious academic tome on the Trinity in early um, modern theology and, and kind of uh, fascinating take on the 17th century published by Oxford University Press. And he could give us a whole series of lectures on that that would be significant. This book will be in, in, the, in libraries, honestly, for decades. It's that, that significant. But that's not what he's going to talk to us about today. He works um, in a fascinating environment, which brings up different challenges and opportunities. And so we really want, um, wanted him to come to share with us about what does it mean to love folks in challenging circumstances. So I think that's all I'll say. Join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Lim. So, <laughs> thank you for the welcome. Um, it's a great honor and delight to actually return to Covenant. I, uh, about three years ago, I believe, I was um, the Reformation Day lecturer. Um, so unless you're a senior, you may not remember me. Even if you're a senior, you may not remember me. So it's, as far as most of us are concerned, it's the first time visit. So um, I would like to draw our attention to uh, the, book, the Book of Romans, chapter 12. Um, as Dr. Kaplick uh, introduced me, I'm not here to give a lecture, I'm here to preach the Word of God, but also draw from my own life experience and also from 
uh, a powerful cultural symbol of uh, forgiveness and restoration that perhaps you have seen getting off this mountain called Linares, right? So Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Let's pray real quickly. Gracious God, as we have read your word just now, may you speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. May you open our hearts unto you. May they be our genuine spirit-led communion with the living Christ. May this be an encouraging and edifying time for all and a moment of glory for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the three words that I'd like for us to consider throughout this short sermon today are somewhat predictable. God, neighbor, and enemy. The first is quite obvious in a Christian sermonic discourse. We talk about God. And we live in God. We live for God. Uh, here at Covenant College, as I'm sure you're studying uh, all disciplines of academic learning for the purpose of bringing glory to God and bringing joy to humanity, improving the conditions of humanity for the glory of God, and the two are not separated, right? So we have then the, the second word, neighbor. Who is my neighbor was a question that was put to Jesus, and you know the answer very, very well. And the third word, which is not on the tongues of many people, um, these days, but the word enemy is something that might have caught your attention as we read this Romans 12 passage. Do you have an enemy? Should you have an enemy? What do you do if you do have an enemy? Who might that person be? Who, what might that look like? These are some questions to ponder, especially as you journey on as college students, looking into the bright future of serving God and living in this world as children of God. I like the analogy quite a lot. I was driving up this mountain and thinking, thank goodness I don't have to drive up this way every day. It's a pretty difficult road, you see, quite narrow, and there was no one behind me, but I felt like just I should pull over and take a break and go up again. But <laughs> So you're on this mountain, uh, surrounded by great um, faculty members and staff and fellow students, uh, really dousing your mind and soul with the love of God and the truth of the living Lord. Yet at the same time, we're all very well aware of both that reality that even on this mountain, not all is sanctified, right? 
And we go down from this mountain, we realize that some may live in ways that are at clear variance from the normative teachings of Scripture. Then what do you do? So I think one of the things that I would like to talk about is how one lives as a person graced with the presence of the triune God, yet living in a world that may at best pay lip service to this God and at worst have a desire to have nothing to do with this God and are in fact hostile to this God and those who say I worship this God as well. So I think, you know, one of the things that we note about Romans chapter 12, as you are studying in your New Testament classes and so on, is that Romans chapter 12 marks a very kind of interesting break point from this long epistle of Paul. Some have called this the gospel according to St. Paul. And here from chapter 12, or at this particular uh, pericope, we have a major turning point in which Paul is beginning to apply the sublime Christian doctrine into the quotidian reality of what it means to follow Jesus as a new Christian in the city of Rome. Who is my ultimate Lord as these Roman citizens and Christians now are living under the edict of the emperor, Caesar? Whose voice, whose uh, ultimate verdict do I find uh, most important in my life? So chapter 12, Paul begins to talk about this, and one of the things that he talks about is this, that theology ought to lead to practice or praxis. Right doctrine leads to right doxology. The songs we sing are theologically rich, and the songs we sing already have some connection with the way that we treat our neighbor, how we think about if there is an enemy, and so forth and so on, and how we think about above all God. Since God has accomplished the work of salvation by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, so the believers, as he says in Romans chapter 12, are urged to do the same by offering their bodies as living sacrifices. Paul connects the bodily and the spiritual so that there is a seamless connection between the two, which wasn't always the way that things were understood in this particular context. Paul says, you know, you, you oughtn't be conformed by the teachings and the spirit of this world, but by the daily renewing of your mind, be transformed by the timeless and eternal truth and the love of God. So daily renovation of mind is what Paul is talking about. Paul says daily, it's a daily endeavor. It doesn't come naturally for us because by nature we would desire to be gods ourselves. By nature, as a result of a cataclysmic fall, we would rather walk away from God and be God's ourselves. So as our nature is renewed by that surprising work of God in Jesus Christ, applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, what Paul is saying is it's a daily battle. It's a battle within and battle without. There are many voices, there are many perspectives that are there and that are within trying to capture our imagination trying to capture the way that we think about self and society and Savior. And Paul says it's a daily work of renewing your mind. In what aspects should we renew our mind? Three things, among others. We often think of God as a very parsimonious deity, very stingy God. We really don't, and that is exactly the way that the first temptation was presented to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? God is actually a very stingy God. He doesn't want you to have fun. 
He wants to deprive you of all kind of pleasure. And so he's put all of these kind of negative prohibitive parameters around the Garden of Eden. But if you actually read the text carefully, God has told Adam and Eve to do anything and to eat anything that there is except for one. So you could have anything you like except for one. That doesn't seem like a real parsimonious deity. It's an establishment of parameters of who God is and who we are, and so forth and so on. We need to renovate or renew our mind from the way that we think about God as sometimes a very stingy or parsimonious deity. We need to renew our minds in the way that we, it often misconstrues my neighbor's intentions, both here at Covenant College and outside of it as well, and fails to forgive them, bringing them to a restored relationship with them. As somebody put it to me recently, the hardest thing to do as a Christian is to forgive. And it was in a counseling situation with a graduate student, and she said, Professor, the hardest thing for me, I know I ought to do it, but forgiveness is not easy. And I said to her, isn't that the truth? It wasn't, do you think the death of God in Jesus Christ on the cross was easy? If forgiveness is so easy, it would not have required the second person of the Holy Trinity to walk among us, to die the shameful death, to effect and establish that forgiveness. It's not easy. And we need to daily renovate or renew our mind in the way that we think of ourselves as a less than eternally beloved children of God. We need to remember that. We need to remember that God really, really, and eternally has loved us and loves us. But we, because of various circumstances, we, because of the way others look at us and judge us, we tend to think that I'm, a, I'm, I'm unfit for communion with this triune God. No, we need to daily remind ourselves of the supremacy and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus and apply that in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we actually begin to believe that Yes, I got nothing, but I got Jesus, and that is sufficient, that is enough. My professor may not think I'm an A-level student, get a B-minus in my chem exam or calculus or Dr. Catholic's theology class, but I know that in the eyes of the living God, I have aced it because Christ aced it for me. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, I'm in my middle ages now, I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm at a stage where I care less and less about what others say about me. I used, for me, when I was your age, that was my consuming passion. Based upon what people will say about me, I would change my hairstyle, I'll change my appearance, I'll wear different things because I coveted, I craved their approval. But with the daily renovation and renewal of our minds, we come to this point of recognizing the sufficiency of the approval that God has already sealed in the death and resurrection, the present intercession of Jesus Christ. So Paul says we need to renew our minds. Okay, well then, you know, uh, how do we renew our minds? Paul, from the passage that we have read, he begins to offer some really counterintuitive and countercultural advice in terms of living in the world, living amid the people who follow uh, the dictates of a different empire different God, different culture. As Augustine writes in his book, The City of God, there is a city of humanity, city of mankind, and the city of God. There are 
in some ways kind of running parallel to each other. Sometimes they're running into each other at counter cross-purposes, but they are there competing for the hearts and the souls of the people of God. So now look at this in verses 19 and 20. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God. You know, one thing I really appreciate about Paul is that he knows who he is. He was a zealous persecutor of the early Christian sect until he on the road to Damascus was turned upside down and became a follower of Jesus himself. He understood the human condition acutely well. He had the audacity and the candor to call himself the chief of all sinners. And at the same time, he understood that all mankind, all of humanity, though created beautifully in the eyes of God, have walked away voluntarily according to their own desires, according to their own design, so that we are in desperate need of divine intervention. And one of the ways that Paul really kind of begins to unpack this beautiful and sublime truth about God's intervention on our behalf and in our midst is the way that we need to rethink about who my neighbor is. How do we look at those who differ from us? And it's not just a philosophical question. It says right here in verse 20, on the contrary, it's a quotation from Proverbs, um, a beautiful quotation from Proverbs uh, 25, 21, and 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on the head of your enemy. Now, frankly, I don't like the word enemy. I, I'm a lover, not a hater. I'm a peacemaker. And we love words and expressions of the peacemaker, shalom, you know, rest, you know uh, reconciliation. But even that word reconciliation presupposes that not everything was at peace. Paul says, you know, there are moments in your life when you are reviled, when you are ridiculed, when you're called a homophobe, when you're called something, some names, and you really do not think you are. And how do you go on living in this world without forsaking it all? And that to me is one of the greatest tensions. I live at Vanderbilt University, actually. I teach there, but I live with first-year students uh, in this place called the Ingram Commons. And it's a delightful place. Uh, it's the best part of my life so far. I've, it's my seventh year of teaching at Vanderbilt and five years, uh, fifth year of living on campus. How many of your first-year students here? Okay, so I live with people like you. And that could be both exhilarating and also excruciating. And it's always best of both worlds. It's, it's, it's a mixture of both these things that keep me on my toes, keep me in prayer. I tell my friends two things, uh, my Christian friends. I'm an academic missionary, and I do ministry of presence. I teach in the Divinity School, a great place in terms of academic excellence. But in terms of the way that our theology is headed at Vanderbilt Divinity School is at, counter, at cross purposes with my own. But I felt and I believe I became a Christian as a junior at Yale. I grew up an atheist. I knew nothing about God. I didn't know anything. I didn't want to know anything about this Christian deity until my junior year, second semester. So I knew that 
my life was in, 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 in need of major transformation. And so I, I've had this kind of soft spot for being in a university context as a Christian. So when God opened the door in 2006 for, for my wife and our son to move from Gordon-Conwell to Vanderbilt, we took that with fear and trepidation, but we also saw that as a missional opportunity. And another missional opportunity opened up uh, when the Ingram Commons opened, uh, opened its doors five years ago. I was asked to be one of the faculty heads. Um, as far as I can tell, I'm the only out evangelical uh, faculty head. Um, and the only Asian American uh, in that role. And I wear both these kind of identities very seriously. And so it's been a very interesting journey, but then it's, it meant that I would come across people who are very different from me in the ways that they think about the world, in the ways that they think about human identity, sexual and otherwise, in the ways that they approach things about religion. And the biggest challenge for me so far has been to keep my Christian integrity, to keep my, to adhere to my identity that was given to me by the work of Jesus Christ? How do I keep myself um, in dialogue with others, yet not making that Faustian exchange, selling my soul, as it were? I haven't always been a winner in this, but I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about how to think about the issues of Christian identity, which incorporates all aspects of our being. How do we think about sexual identity these days? You know, I've had a lot of conversations about this particular issue of LGBTQTI, and now you're pretty interested, like, what is he going to say? You know, I would say this. I'm a conservative person when it comes to that, but being at Vanderbilt has allowed access to the lives of many students and colleagues whose narratives really point me to the cross and force me to struggle. And then one of the questions that I've had about my own ecclesial community, I'm a Presbyterian ordained, is do we have room for struggling gays and lesbians and bisexuals in our community, for them to really struggle with and continue to draw strength from the living God. Recognizing what scripture has to say about that, do we have, is this a safe zone? I think that's the question. Because I've come to realize that I get hit from both sides. For my liberal friends, I'm way too conservative. For my conservative friends, just the fact that I even begin to talk about the church being a safe zone for people of all sorts who are struggling with all kinds of issues, suicidal ideation to sexual identity to just feeling just all around depressed about who they are. Is the church a safe zone for people like me, like you? Is it? That's the question. Because for Paul, he says, you know, there's a daily renewing of our minds that we need to be involved with. God is in the business. God desires one of the powerful works of the Holy Spirit is to daily renovate our internal edifice and the external manifestation of that internal disposition. That the Spirit desires to renew us. How is God? God tells us that, and 
the, the, the thing is loving the Lord by serving the enemy. Paul says, you know, you, you're going to do something that would be really, really surprising. Because do not repay anyone evil for evil. Bless those who persecute you. These are not statements of nature but of grace. By nature, I am going to curse those who persecute me. I am going to repay somebody who does me evil. Because I can always say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and this is how I'm going to do it. Let me illustrate a beautiful example of this, as I mentioned to you earlier. How many of you have seen the movie Les Miserables? Great. Wonderful. I teach every year a course called History of Christianity in the Reformation Era. And one of the ways that I thought I could really try to get our students to think about justice and mercy was by assigning this film as a required text. So they're, they're, they're asked to watch Les Mis and to write a paper about the tension between law and gospel. You know, I've seen that musical about six times. It's my wife's favorite musical. We've seen it when we were living in Philadelphia together, and then we've seen it twice in London and three times in New York. For my wife, this is, that reminds her of her mom who was deceased. But also, it really powerfully encapsulates the beauty of the gospel and the power, the transforming power of redemption. Remember that scene where Zhang Valjean, right? After 19 years of servitude and incarceration gets out and he goes to a village and I don't want to, if you're interested in watching the movie, don't want to hear about it, just go like this and don't listen to me, okay? But it really is a powerful scene where that exchange takes place. That Zhang Valjean, who had stolen a loaf of bread and spent 19 years, and then he goes to this town, and then everyone is just like, they don't want to have him in their midst. He gets a, 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 a night's lodging and free meal at this priest home. And after the meal, what do you know, in the middle of the night, there's a commotion going on because this man has stolen all the belongings, all the candlesticks and silverware that belong to this priest. And in the musical, actually, much more powerfully, the, you know, both the officers and the townspeople gather, right? And then they say, you know, this man had the audacity to say that you had given all of these things to him. And the priest says, and that is right. And moreover, he says, you know what? This man must have been in, in such a hurry because he forgot that I gave him more. Now, think about that. Jean Valjean is on the floor expecting to hear the words of justice and law. And instead, what does he hear? He hears an absolutely unprecedented, unanticipated response. Not only is he writing alleging that I have given him these things, but he forgot that I gave him more. Everyone disperses one by one, leaving the stage for Jean Valjean and the priest. And the priest pronounces pardon and renewed life upon the soul of this jagged-edged man called Jean Valjean. 24601. I am no longer 24601. I'm a new man, and I'm going to walk into this life. But could he just eat, simply waltz into a newness of life? Not so easily, could he? Because there was another man whose life's mission was to capture him back, and that's Javert. You know, I don't know if you remember that song. He sings that beautiful song, very, very powerful song, standing atop this tower, right? And his desire is to cat, capture that man and says, Lord, 
And he sings a song unto God. It says, my way is, and this is Javert, who stands for law. It says, my way is the way of the Lord. And he sings to God and says, Lord, let me find him. And you know, the powerful coalescence of these two individuals in their most unlikely circumstance, Javert meets Jean Valjean. But now who has the upper hand? Jean Valjean has the opportunity to get rid of this man who's been a haunting specter in Jean Valjean's life. Jean Valjean has the gun, could kill him, and everyone expects that to happen. He takes him to an alleyway, and he fires that shot, but into midair, powerfully symbolizing the work of forgiveness, powerfully demonstrating that Jean Valjean indeed was a changed man. He loved the Lord. He remembered the price of his redemption by serving his enemy in this fashion. Completely unexpected, completely unanticipated, yet he does. And Javert's response, and you know what happens to Javert. He cannot accept the fact that this low-life scum, ex-con 24601, is extending him the, the hand of forgiveness and restoration. So the only recourse available for him as a man of law without the gospel was that of taking his own life away. Now, friends, the time is up for us to conclude this message. What does that mean for us to live in this world as followers of Jesus Christ at Covenant College? You are aspiring to be, now you have some culture test on Friday, and that means I think you're trying to broaden your understanding of and appreciation for the many fall nations that God has created, right? I think that's what you're doing, no? And all of these things mean that you will have a lot of interesting hurdles and challenges and obstacles, but do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Your God is with you. People may hurl epithets at your direction. Do not repay. Love them. Serve them. And continue to draw your strength from your friends, as I have in the latest struggle, and I'd be happy to share in a, in a luncheon afterward. The struggle that I had, I, I drew strength from Dr. Kapik and from numerous friends, both within the state and within the country and much beyond. The Spirit will guide you. The Spirit will strengthen you. So may the Spirit do that for his glory and for your joy. May you love our Lord by serving our enemy and by loving the neighbor, but for by doing so, you will fulfill the law. Shall we pray together, please? Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you there that you're ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that daily renewal of our minds and living in this world, as you're preparing these students at Covenant College on atop this mountain, as they are on the lookout for the world, as they are on the lookout for the signs of grace, signs of shalom. May they be the bearers of that good news in their life. May they bring the glad tidings of the gospel in their daily walk with you. And Lord, as you're calling them into various parts of the world where neighbors and enemies live together, may they continue to love you by serving the enemy whoever it may be, they may be, she may be, he may be. May you continue to draw us closer to yourself. We have many questions and puzzles. 
We don't have all the answers, yet we know the one who has the answer, for he is the truth and love. We thank you for your work among us today. We love you, for you have loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The preceding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.